through God's sovereignty and his goodness, he placed me here in a community with people, right, under Phil Ward, who was the pastor at the time. And I really know that the Lord used Kairos um, for just a lot of formation um, in that time of my life and even going forward. And so when Josh asked me to speak, um, I'm going to say it was like a month, maybe two months ago. It was a month ago. Um, I, I actually sat down. I, I thought for a long time about, um, man, when I was in Kairos, what was it that I really needed to hear? Um, what was it that, that, that meant the most to me, that had the biggest impact to me when I was a college student, sitting where you're sitting right now, uh, thinking through the things that you're thinking through right now, experiencing the things that you're experiencing right now? You know, what were the lessons that I learned here? And in order to show you that, um, I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians 2. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12, because I think in a lot of ways, this passage actually captures a lot of what God taught me through Kairos and even through my years at Moody and in college in general. So 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. And this is how it reads. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. And I pray that you would use your truth to sanctify us as you promised to do. Lord, I have no power, no merit in and of myself, Lord, to make any change. It's only, Lord, through your spirit and through your word, which when it goes out, it does not return void, by which we are changed. God, it's through your word by which we may behold your glory, we might behold your goodness, we might behold your gospel, and in beholding Christ, that we may be changed from one degree of glory to another. So God, would you speak to us in this time? Would you use your word to pierce our hearts and our intentions and our thoughts? Use your word to sanctify us, use your word to convict us, to encourage us, to charge us. And God, that we together, Lord, would move forward knowing that it's through you 
that we are made good and holy. And it's, Lord, through this gospel that we've been entrusted with that we may go to the world and proclaim the truth. So be with us today, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, early 1900s, many of you guys might not know this, but there is actually an explosion of missionary growth across the earth, uh, particularly missionaries being sent from England and America. Uh, this was in the wake of revivals that were kind of sweeping through those lands. And because of that, there was, there was droves and droves of missionaries going to places like Africa, Latin America, Asia. A lot of these missionaries, they would actually pack their possessions into their coffins because they knew we ain't coming back. We're either going to die there or, well, yeah, we're going to die there, pretty much was their conviction, whether through disease or from old age. And actually, a lot of them did die. A lot of them did, never did come back. But because of their efforts, um, some of you guys know that uh, the average Christian today is actually a middle-aged African woman. And this is largely due to the fact that missionaries were sent in the mid to late 1800s, early 1900s to Africa, right, to the jungles, to the Sahara. And they did missionary work for years and years and years, and many of them didn't see fruit for a long time, but then the Spirit of God just moved. But one of the places that they also sent missionaries was to China. Um, China actually had a plethora of missionaries uh, in the land. There was a dude named Hudson Taylor, maybe some of you have heard of him, but he was a, a guy that actually started the China Inland Mission. And it was through his efforts that a lot of missionaries were in China, and they did a lot of work. And there was, there was a lot of headway that they made. But even early on, China actually ran into a lot of problems, the, the missionaries there. So there was something called the Boxer Rebellion. I don't know if you guys ever heard of the Boxer Rebellion, but in China, under the Boxer Rebellion, there were actually thousands of missionaries that lost their lives and were martyred uh, because of that incident. So they ran into that, and then there was a little something called World War II, where Japan, and even before World War II, they invaded China. And then uh, after World War II ended, who took over China? The communists. And I don't know if you know anything about communists and Christians, but they don't really go together, <laughs> right? So the communists kicked all the missionaries out. Um, and a lot of these missionaries that had been working in China, right, they, they had been discipling people, they had been coming alongside people. And then the very next day, it seemed, they had to leave, right? They, had, they, they literally had to flee the country. And the thing is, like, they left, they had no idea what was going to happen to these, the Christians that, that they had seen converted, Right? They, they didn't know, are these people going to fail under persecution? Are they going to walk away from the faith? Like, well, what's going to happen? So, but they didn't have any way of knowing. They had to flee. And so for decades after the missionaries left, there was no contact at all with the Christians in China under communism. And the missionaries that were forced to leave were, were, were left wondering what happened to these Christians that we were discipling. What happened to these Christians that we were reaching out to? Well, a few decades later, um, China became more open, and so a lot of these missionaries ended up going back to see what had happened to these Christians. You know what they found? They found that the church had actually exploded and grown exponentially, much to their surprise. 
And the reason why is because as soon as they left, the Christians in the area, the indigenous Chinese believers, were forced to really take ownership and leadership of their faith, and they started reaching out to their neighbors, and, and, and Chinese Christianity became an indigenous, indigenous movement that grew exponentially because the very people that had become Christians started reaching out to their neighbors. Now imagine if you were a missionary in China that got kicked out and then you've spent decades wondering what happened to these Christians and you go back and you find that the church has actually grown. Imagine how encouraged your heart would be. Like you would be overjoyed to see the work that the Spirit had done. And why do I tell this story? Well, the reason why I'm telling this story is, is because in a lot of the same way, this is actually why Paul was writing this letter, 1 Thessalonians, and later 2 Thessalonians. Because Paul was actually forced to leave Thessalonica a little earlier than he anticipated. Um, right before he went to Thessalonica, he was in this place called Philippi. Some of you guys know the story of the Philippian jailer, where basically they beat Paul up along with his friend Silas, put him in jail. They were singing hymns. God shows up powerfully. The Philippian jailer gets converted along with his whole household. Paul and Silas and his gang, they're on a spiritual high. They're like, nothing can stop us. We got this. They go to Thessalonica. And we, we can actually read the story real quick in Acts 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just read it real quick. But in Acts 17, it tells the story of what happened in Thessalonica. And this is what it says. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned from them, or with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But then check this out. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set this city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So what happened was, as the story says, they were in Thessalonica, but all of a sudden, persecution started arising and they actually ended up beating up and dragging Jason, the, the people that were hosting Paul and Silas in their household, and find them, and then sent them away. And the brothers then were like, look, if they find Paul and Silas, we don't know what's going to happen, right? They, they could get killed if they find them. So they sent them away by night in order to keep Paul and Silas safe. But that wasn't Paul and Silas's desire, right? They wanted to stay but because the danger was too great, they ended up leaving. And so Paul and his team, they ended up moving on, even only after being there for a few weeks. But Paul was so concerned about the believers in Thessalonica, right? After he left, he couldn't stop thinking about them. He was like, man, what happened to them, right? Like, we're, we're doing so, there was so much gospel fruit while we were there. 
And they were just heavy on his heart. And so what he ended up doing was he called Timothy to him. He said, Timothy, you need to go back to Thessalonica, right? Because we can't abandon these believers to just fend for themselves, right? We need to, to, to see how they're doing and to bring them encouragement. And so he sends Timothy away. And so Timothy leaves Paul's company. And Paul and Silas on their missionary journey, they end up going to a place called Corinth. And they were staying there for a while. And so Timothy, after going to Thessalonica, he catches up with them in Corinth. And what he says is, you're not going to believe this, but the church in Thessalonica has actually grown, right? They, they haven't buckled under persecution. They've actually become more resilient. They're reaching out to their neighbors. They're loving each other. It's awesome. And so Paul was so overjoyed that he wrote First Thessalonians to bring some further encouragement to the church there. And he writes in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, right? I was describing this. Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions because they were experiencing persecution. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And then what did he find? He found that it wasn't in vain, right? He find, found that they were being bold, even in the face of persecution. Which is why, in the first couple of verses of our passage, chapter 2, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So why was it not in vain? Well, their coming wasn't in vain because the people had believed. It wasn't in vain because they were being resilient in persecution. It wasn't in vain because they were seeing fruit in their midst. Because Paul had had boldness to declare the gospel, and the people were being changed. And get this, nothing brought Paul more joy than to know that the people were suffering under persecution and enduring and spreading the gospel. Nothing brought him more joy. Nothing brought him more concern. Nothing occupied more of his thoughts and more of his heart than to know that the people were enduring because of the gospel. You guys see the centrality of the gospel in Paul's mind, in Paul's thinking, in Paul's ministry? And yet the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why is it that Paul was so concerned with the Thessalonians' uh, faith, right, with them enduring? Why is it that he was so concerned with it? and was so overjoyed by it. What was driving him? And the answer is actually found in the rest of the text. So we find this progression, all right? Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different. As you guys know, like, well, previous times when I preach, when I preached, I'm usually like, this is point one, this is point two, this is point three, you know, and I'll, like, reiterate the points, like, over and over again. So I'm going to do something a little bit different, all right? So I'm actually, I want you guys not to remember my points, but to actually see the logic of the text. Does that make sense? There's a logic that Paul is using and that Paul is demonstrating, and I want you guys to actually see that in the progression of the verses. All right, so here's the logic that Paul is using. Delighting in God, you see in verses 3 and 4, delighting in God leads 
to being entrusted with the gospel. Moving, moving on, being entrusted with the gospel, verses 5 through 10, leads to a proclamation of the gospel and to giving of your very own self for the sake of the gospel. And then those who proclaim the gospel and share themselves for the sake of the gospel, number three, leads to others delighting in that gospel who will then replicate that very process. So delight leads to being entrusted. Being entrusted leads to proclaiming and giving of oneself. Proclaiming and, and giving of oneself for the sake of the gospel leads to making people who delight in the gospel who then do the very same thing. And this is how the church grows. Okay, so let's actually dive in, right? Let's actually get into the meat of the text, so to speak, and, and see this at play, all right? So let's look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Okay, so first question. What is this appeal? He says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. So the first question we have to ask is, what is this appeal that, that he's talking about? And, and the answer is, the appeal that he's talking about is the gospel itself. It's, it's the appeal for people to believe in Jesus Christ, to repent of sin, to turn away from sin, and to Christ who redeems, redeems from sin. And notice what he says, right? Paul, one thing that you'll find in a lot of the New Testament is Paul will constantly contrast ideas to make a point. So a lot of times he'll start off with what something is not in order to demonstrate later what it is. And we find that here. He says, look, our appeal, this gospel appeal to believe, does not spring from error or impurity or attempts to deceive, right? It, it doesn't spring from the fact that we don't know what we're talking about, that we're wrong. Right, that, that it didn't actually happen. It doesn't spring from impure motives. It doesn't spring from an attempt to deceive you or an attempt to deceive ourselves. Right, so this gospel, in contrast, is true. It's pure. And it's, 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 a, it's a, an honest, I guess, sort of appeal. Does that make sense? You guys see that? So it's not... It doesn't spring from error. It doesn't spring from impurity. It doesn't spring from an attempt to deceive. So what is it? In verse 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So now the question becomes, okay, from where does Paul get his approval? to make this appeal of the gospel. Where does this approval come from? And the answer is, is that it comes from the gospel itself. It actually comes from the very message that he's giving. The very appeal that he's giving is the very appeal which actually approves him to give the appeal. It's the gospel itself. It's, it's the gospel of sheer grace because what does the gospel say, right? The gospel says, you're not saved by works. You're not saved by your own merits. You're not saved by anything that you do or you can do before God. You're saved by sheer grace. You're saved purely 
by what God has done, by the fact that Jesus, while we were enemies, while we were estranged, came to us. He's the one who crossed the void. He's the one that did the work. Paul's appeal of the gospel actually springs from the very gospel of grace that he's preaching. The fact that he's been ransomed by no merit of his own. And because because he has received God's approval through the grace of Jesus Christ, that is what approves him in order to make his appeal to others. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 4, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In other words, the one who's already approved Paul is the one that Paul's trying to please. His motivation isn't fear. His motivation is actually worship. He isn't afraid of the God who tests our hearts. Now think about that phrase for a second, God who tests our hearts. Right? How can that be that Paul is not afraid of the God who tests our hearts? I think to get some insight into this, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, but check this out real quick, all right? So Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and this is what he says. Is this thing, like, knocking? Okay, we're good. All right. All right, so... In order to get some insight in this, we've got to look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is what it says. It says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. And Paul goes on to write some different things. But, you know, the thing, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And the thing that's always struck me about 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, where, where Paul's talking about, man, God's the one who judges me. I don't even judge myself, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't really care what people think. And the thing that's always struck me about this passage is that it sounds like no one I know. It sounds like literally nobody that I know. Because if you and I are honest, most of us are pretty paralyzed by what other people think. Uh, most of us are pretty paralyzed about whether or not our intentions are really pure. Right? You and I, we're actually afraid of this idea that God could actually expose our hearts before people and that everyone else is going to see what our real intentions are. Because if you really sat down and you really thought about it, you would know, and if you were really honest you would know that your intentions aren't 100% pure. Right? All of us have impure intentions on some level. And the idea that other people, that God would actually lay bare before other people our true intentions is actually a really scary thought. And we're terrified of the fact that other people might find us out. And yet, in contrast, Paul's like, yeah, I don't actually really care what people think. Um... I don't even judge myself. And I think about you and I, right? We're constantly judging ourselves. We're constantly sitting down. We're constantly thinking about, are my intentions pure? Am I doing this for the right reasons? 
Am I sitting in church for the right reasons? Am I going to Kairos for the right reasons? Am I serving in this ministry for the right reasons? Maybe it's impure. Maybe I'm not doing it for the right reason. Maybe I should stop serving because maybe my intentions aren't pure. Or maybe I should just keep doing it because then if I stop, people are going to start asking me why. And then I, I'm not, I can't deal with that. And now people are going to find me out. And so let's just white knuckle our way through life, hoping that nobody actually asks us why we're doing what we're doing because hopefully we could just make it through and, you know, our bad thoughts will go away. And then burnout happens. And then people get discouraged and they don't know why. And in contrast, Paul's like, yeah, I don't really care what people think and uh, I don't even judge myself. I'm not actually occupied with those thoughts. And then his reasoning is, well, because it's actually God's the one who judges me. Which doesn't make any sense to us because we're terrified of the fact <laughs> that God could see our true intentions and is going to judge us on account of that. And yet Paul is like nonchalant. And he's so confident. He's so confident in the face of the fact that God is going to lay his heart bare. How can that be? And the answer is, it's because Paul actually has confidence in his message. Paul has confidence in the gospel that he's stewarding. That he's not made right by how pure his intentions are. He's not made, he's not justified by his merits and by his ministry performance. He's justified and he has value because of what Christ has done alone. Right, because only somebody who knows that their judgment by God has been dealt with and acquitted can be confident on the day of judgment before God. I mean, if you were going into a courtroom and you knew the judge was getting in with the judge, you knew he was on your side. It doesn't matter what the charges are, right? You're good. And that's Paul's reasoning here. He's like, look, I don't, I don't have to spend my time and worry about what other people think, and I don't have to actually trip over my self-doubt because at the end of the day, God is the one who judges me, and I know that my judgment has been dealt with by God because that's the heart of the gospel. Only a person who knows that their judgment by God has been acquitted can be confident on that day of judgment. And only somebody who knows that their judgment has been dealt with can speak to please God and not to earn from God, to truly please him. You and I already know this, but the people for whom Christianity is primarily about morality and rules and a moral code and earning from God are definitely not the ones who proclaim Jesus. The people for, for whom Christianity's rules and regulations are the people that don't proclaim them. Because you don't proclaim that which is joyless to you. I mean, if, if something is a weight a dreary weight, you won't proclaim that thing. And what would be your intention if you did proclaim it? Right? What would be your intention if you were proclaiming this gospel that to you is rules and regulations and being moral and being good enough for God? What would it be to earn? Your, your very proclamation, your very appeal would be to know, to, to find some type of satisfaction in yourself that you're doing enough to earn from God. How many of you guys have ever had a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness show up to your door? You know, I've heard Christians say, like, man, like, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are to be admired because they go door to door. You know, like, t 
talking about their message. And like, we Christians should do that. But you know, I don't, I have, actually have a lot of trouble with that. And the reason why is because look, when, when Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon comes to your door, you can spend all, a lot of time, right, debating points of doctrine. Like you guys believe this, believe this. Well, you guys say this about Jesus, but we say this about Jesus, right? Let's try to figure this out. But after all that, I would encourage you the next time a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, just look at them in the eye and say, listen, why are you here right now making this appeal to me right now? Because the reality is, is that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, in their appeal, they are making their appeal because they have been taught that in their appeal to you, they are somehow meriting a form of God's approval. Right, Jehovah's Witnesses are out there pounding the pavement because they want to be part of the 144,000. And they know that one of the ways in which they merit that is that they actually go out and they proselytize to people. And Mormons are out there going door to door and meeting with people because on some level they know that to be a good Mormon, you have to go on a mission. You have to reach out to your, na- out to your neighbors. You have to fulfill these certain things in order to, to garner a certain amount of approval from God. And so their very appeal to... Uh, to believe in their message is actually based in impurity and in error because they're making their appeal and they're making their, uh, their proclamation out of a sense that they need to in order to be justified before God. And yet, why does the Christian make their appeal? The Christian makes their appeal because they've already been approved by God. Because the gospel says that there's nothing you can do to earn God's approval. There's nothing you can do to merit his grace. And God gives it freely. And so why does the Christian make their appeal? The Christian makes their appeal without error, without impurity, without attempts to deceive, because they've been saved by sheer grace. And because they've been saved by sheer grace, they wish to see others come to delight in the same God who has saved them by sheer grace. And in their proclamation, it's, it's actually an act of worship. I, there's a quote from Lord of the Rings by this dude named Faramir. He says, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. I love that. Because the idea is that, man, if you find God most beautiful, most worthy of praise, most awesome and holy and glorious, well, then what greater delight can there be but to please the one whom you find most praiseworthy? Because the praise of praiseworthy is above all rewards. Right? So we do things on motivation of worship, not, not seeking the approval of one that's already given it to us in the gospel. But then the question naturally arises, all right? What does a true proclamation of the gospel look like? What do real worshipers of God who are truly proclaiming the gospel out of love, not obligation, what does that look like? And, and we actually see that Paul goes on in this passage and he describes that. So look with me in verse 5. Verse 5 says, or starting in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So again, Paul starts off, look, this is what it doesn't look like. This is what a true proclamation of the gospel doesn't look like. This is what we didn't do. Number one, we didn't come with words of flattery. 
right? We, di- we didn't come, even though we loved you, we didn't come to appease you. We didn't come to tell you something to tickle your ears. We didn't come to flatter you. We came to tell you the truth. Um, and I think this is relevant today because there's a lot of churches and a lot of people out there that teach what Phil Ward likes to call diamond in the rough theology. And I agree with him. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like the pastor that says, you know what? You're actually awesome. Everything about you is awesome. You're great. You're great. But you have like one or two little problems. So get a little church in your life, sprinkle a little Jesus on you, and, uh, you know, get your act together a little bit. And uh, you're good. But God, for the most part, just he's just like crazy about you. He's just crazy. I mean, you just bring so much to the table of Christianity. And it's like, it's diamond in the rough theology because it, essentially they're, they're tickling your ears. They're flattering you. And they're not telling you the truth. The truth of sin. And that sin needs to be addressed. The truth that, hey, actually, you really don't have any merit before God. Actually, you're in pretty dire straits. And if you're not honest about your sin, if you're not honest about the fact that you can't do anything to earn God's favor and approval, that you're actually an enemy of God without the gospel, then you're in trouble. And an honest appeal of the gospel will not flatter people. It'll tell the truth because grace really is not that amazing if sin is not really that terrible. And so before the good news can mean anything, we have to be honest about the way things really are. And it's pretty bad news, the way things are. And somebody who's making a true appeal of the gospel, they're not just, just going to be nonchalant about those things. They'll, they'll be honest about it because they're being motivated by love, not a fear of man. I mean, if you care more about what people think, Christianity is not for you. It's going to be real because you're going to offend people and it's going to get uncomfortable. Your worldview your convictions. And then on top of all that, you have to somehow love the people that are different from you. (laughs) But a true proclamation of the gospel does not come with words of flattery. In verse 5, it doesn't come with a pretext for greed. Paul's saying we didn't come uh, using the gospel as a means of gain, as a way of getting money from you, as a means to something else. And I think this is really relevant today too, and we know this. I mean, look, I don't, I don't like to just name names to name names for, you know, for naming names sake, but people like Joel Osteen and people like Creflo Dollar and all this prosperity gospel nonsense that's out there, where basically they're saying, if you have enough faith and if you give enough money to our church and you do these things, then God's going to bless you and he's going to give you all your heart's desire. And they're using the gospel message as a means of gain as a pretext for greed, as a way of exploiting people and enslaving people to this ideology that's destructive. And you know, the most disheartening thing is the prosperity gospel is actually, it doesn't really flourish the most in the West. It actually flourishes the most in countries that are really poor. The heart of Africa and various parts in Latin America, where people are steeped in poverty and then just 
preacher comes along and says, if you give it a little bit of money and you have a little bit of faith that God's going to give you mounds of possessions and people, because they're desperate, want to believe them. And these people are using the gospel as a pretext, like I said, for greed. And I'm not even saying this to bash Joel Osteen or Creflo Dollar, although I think what they're doing is wicked, but honestly, I'm concerned because I do not want to be them on judgment day. Because the Bible says that we'll have to give an account for every word that we've given. And if these people have used the gospel as a way to exploit people and as a way to gain things from people, how do you think God is going to respond to them on the day they have to stand before them? Or they have to stand before him. Verse 6. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Right? Even though they had the right, even though they, they, they had been entrusted with the gospel by Jesus himself. Paul had a vision of Christ right, appearing to him in glory on the road to Damascus. I mean, I'm in seminary right now. I'm, i got to say, Paul's seminary experience is a lot better than mine. Right? God, Jesus actually showed up to him, blinded him. But they didn't exploit their rights. They didn't hang that over people. They didn't make demands on account of their status as apostles. And you know, there's a lot of people that seek glory. They use Christianity as a way of seeking glory. You know, like, there's a lot of people who make Christianity a lot more about them than they do about Jesus. People that, as Christians, they want to show you how smart they are or how pious they are or how the- theologically informed they are. Um, you know, people you're having a conversation with and are like, well, actually, Wayne Grudem says uh, this and this and this. And, uh, you know, I was reading in my uh, commentary the other day. Uh, this and, and you're like, dude, I'm trying to, like, share about my struggles right now. And you're talking to me, to me about what it this passage means in the Greek. <laughs> there's a lot of people that use Christianity as a means of getting glory for themselves. And there's a lot of, I hate to say this, but there's a lot of pastors that are a lot, they look a lot more like personality cults than shepherds. And all the people that they're discipling just look like mini-me's of them. You know, the pastors that look really hip and wear tight jeans and, you know, have Christian tattoos. And it's like, Man, interesting, your church is like a bunch of those people too. <laughs> but that's why one of the true markers of a church that's doing gospel ministry is that it's actually, it looks diverse. And I don't mean diverse as in like, like a hip way, but it's like a true church is going to have multi-ethnic people, it's going to have skinny people and fat people, it's going to have cool people and awkward people. Because a true church that's preaching the gospel is not going to be full of just one type of person, right? It's because it's not replicating a certain type of pastor or a certain type of person. It's making Jesus followers who occupy every area of life. But when people use Christianity as a way to seek glory from, other, from others, well, then they just end up replicating themselves, not the good parts. And it's a scary thing. Who is more anointed than the apostles? And yet the apostles said, imitate us as far as we imitate Christ. So you say, you don't have to look like us, you don't have to be culturally the same as us and all this stuff, but you do have to be like us in the way that we are like Jesus. And the only way that that's going to happen 
is not if you're making demands of people, but you're actually giving of yourself for the sake of the gospel. You guys see that? Now, he talks about what it's not, right? We didn't come with a pretext for greed. We didn't come seeking glory from people. We didn't come with words of flattery. But what did they do? Well, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Think about that imagery for a second, right? We were gentle among you. We cared for you. Like we were giving you the gospel. We cared for you. We desired you. We wanted to be around you. We wanted to care for your needs, to really know you. You know what I, look, how many of you guys have had, know somebody that um, has had a baby recently? Wow. No one. <laughs> I see like four or five. Okay, so one of my good friends, uh, my roommate's sister, uh, Lauren Mariscal, actually just had a baby. It was her third one. We're all really psyched. Um, and it's a really joyous time, right, when, when a new life comes into the world. And it's a time of rejoicing. But you know what I've never seen happen? I have never seen a mom, uh, a new, new mother, uh, like a day after they give birth say, man, this whole mother thing is it's really stressing me out. I just got to get away for a while. Would you mind just watching my kid? I'm going to go get some wings with my buddies. And uh, I'm going on a road trip. We'll be back in a few days. I've never seen that once. Because a nursing mother, the apocalypse could be happening, and that mother is not going anywhere. Right? That mother is going to be with that child because of their affection and their desire for that child. And Paul is basically saying the type of affection that a nursing mother has for their children, that's the type of concern and the type of love that I had for you. I was so concerned for you and I, I desired you so much that it was like a nursing mom who just had a baby and is rejoicing over the fact that this new life is in the world and, and, and all that that mother wants to do is care for that child. And that's the type of desire that Paul is expressing because of the gospel that, which he believes in. That's why he goes on in verse 8 and he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. People who are giving a true proclamation of the gospel, people whose gospel is springing forth from the gospel message itself, you know how you know how you can distinguish them from other people? Is that they don't just share the gospel, they share their very selves. They share their lives. Uh, they don't just share words of truth. Uh, they share their time. People who believe the gospel and are truly living out the gospel, they don't just share their Sundays or their Tuesday nights. Uh, they share their whole weeks with you. They don't just meet you at their church. They actually invite you into their homes. And they share their food. And they share their tables. They give all of themselves for the sake of glorifying Christ. And maybe you're thinking when you hear that, you're like, man, I really wish I had people like that in my life. <laughs> I really wish I had people that uh, gave of their time and their resources. That didn't just hang out with me on, on Sundays or Tuesdays, but they actually opened up their homes to me. They actually opened up their tables. They actually give of themselves. They actually 
give their time and their resources and all this stuff. Maybe you're thinking, man, it would be really awesome if I had people like that in my life. But the real question is, men and women of Kairos, are you that person in somebody's life? Uh, some of you guys know I read Lord of the Rings every year. I've been doing it for the last three or four years. Um, and it, uh, I get something new from it every time, but, but one of the things that sticks out to me every time is the character of Sam Gamgee. He's the little hobbit friend that's, that's Frodo's friend. And uh, there, it's really interesting. There was an interview with J.R.R. Tolkien where uh, the interviewer was talking to him and he was mentioning, he's like, yeah, you know, actually Sam Gamgee is my favorite character, you know, for these reasons. And the way that Tolkien responded, he goes, you know, it's interesting you say that because I, as the writer of Lord of the Rings, have always, always said and always, always thought that the, the real hero of Lord of the Rings is not Frodo. The real hero of Lord of the Rings is actually Sam. Because Sam was a true friend. Sam was the one that when Frodo left the company, Sam actually sought Frodo out and said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to let you go alone. Sam was the one that when Frodo was in danger, Sam actually rescued him. Sam was the one that when Frodo was trying to go up the, the slopes of Mount Doom and fell because he was so tired and despairing, Sam was the one who actually put Frodo on his back and walked up the slopes of Mount Doom because he couldn't bear the ring himself. So he just carried Frodo. Sam was the one that never lost heart. He was the one that never lost hope. He was the one that always was faithful. Sam was the true friend. Sam was the true hero. And the interviewer looked at Tolkien and said, man, I wish everybody had a Sam. And Tolkien looked back at him and said, well, that's the thing. Be a Sam. See, we all want a Sam in our lives, but we aren't willing to be a Sam most of the time because, honestly, we're selfish and entitled. And uh, we don't want to love people when it's hard and inconvenient. You know, I've, I've sat with a lot of people, some of them actually who have been a part of Kairos when I was here and even later. I've sat, I've sat with a lot of people and talked with a lot of people who complain and gripe about how their community isn't real and people aren't vulnerable and they feel discouraged when they aren't willing to actually take that first step and be that themselves. You know, we're quick to point other people and say, man, like, I don't understand why people aren't loving. I don't understand why people aren't vulnerable. I don't understand why people don't give them themselves, and yet we never actually take the step or take a moment to to step back and and ask ourselves the question, have I actually done that? Have I actually been the one that's been willing to be real? Maybe other people aren't willing to be vulnerable because, honestly, I'm standoffish, and people annoy me, (laughs) and I don't want to hang out with them. Maybe people aren't willing to give of themselves because they haven't seen that you're the type of person that it's safe to do that with because you don't give of yourself. Because it's hard. But don't misunderstand me. You know, I'm not saying we all really need to try harder to be better, to be more vulnerable, to be more given because actually in your own strength, in your own power, you can't do that. The problem is not that we aren't trying hard enough Really, maybe actually all this shows that our view of the gospel is too dim. Maybe it actually shows that we really don't believe the gospel as much as we think we do. And therefore, we're selfish and, you know, we're not vulnerable and we're closed off to people. Because the gospel says in Romans 5, 6 through 10, that while we were sinners and while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us and that he ransomed us. 
and that he didn't wait for us to get our act together, but at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel says in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 10, right? We, we read verses 1 through 5 during worship where he says, you know, have the mind of Christ. And then he, but then in verses 6 through 10, he actually goes on to say, have the mind of Jesus. Who Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross, that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The gospel shows a God who sent his very own son that while we were hating him, while we were spitting in his face, while we were in sin against him, he broke through all the barriers and actually made himself nothing and gave of his very self to have us and redeem us. And how can a person that truly believes that not love other people the way that he's loved us? See, our problem isn't that we aren't trying hard enough. Our problem is that, like I said, our vision of the gospel is too dim. We don't actually believe it. And because we don't actually believe it, we're not willing to be vulnerable. We're not willing to give of ourselves. We're not willing to do the things that are hard because because we don't believe that, maybe we don't really actually believe the measure that Jesus did that for us. That's why 1 John 3, 14 through 16 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life, not if we're really smart, not if we have a lot of doctrinal purity, not if all this stuff, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do you know you pass out of death into life? How do you know that the gospel is not just something that you know up here, but it's something that's actually seeped into the very bedrock of your soul? You want to know how you know it? You love. You love people when it's hard. You love people when it's inconvenient. You love people when they're grouchy. And honestly, you would really rather not spend time with them. But then you remember that Christ made himself nothing. And while you were an enemy, he broke through every barrier to have you. You want to know you believe the gospel? How's your love? And again, the solution isn't to try harder to love people. in your own strength to white knuckle your way through life. The solution is to behold. Behold the one who laid down his life so that we could lay down ours. Just as it said in 1 John, the passage I just, I just read. You know, I've been reading this book called Imperfect Disciple by Jared Wilson. I love the, the subtext. It says, Imperfect Disciple, uh, the gospel for people who can't get their act together. I read that and I was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I need that book. I need that book, right? Because I can't get my act together. And you know what he says? He says, Christianity is not primarily about um, white-knuckling. Christianity is primarily about beholding. Beholding Christ. Because the more you behold him in Scripture, the more you behold him in relationships with one another, the more you behold him in worship and in community, the more that you're changed from one degree of glory to the next and the more that you're sanctified and the more that you love others for the sake of his kingdom. The solution isn't white knuckling or trying. The solution is to behold Jesus Christ in the gospel who gave himself for us 
who emptied himself on our behalf to reconcile us to God. It's the people who are in awe of Jesus and what he's done that will give and love others the way that he has. You want to love others the way Jesus has loved you? Stand in awe of Christ. How can one be in awe of the gospel and hate their brother? That's the logic of 1 John that I just read. How can one behold Jesus Christ on the cross and see him risen from the grave and say, "Eh, this person's annoying. And it's for this reason, right, that this is why Paul gave of himself. That he said, we're willing to just share the gospel. We're willing to share our very selves. And that's why he goes on to, to write in verse 9 through 10. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So Paul because of his love for them that was spurred on by the gospel, he labored night and day. And he was holy and righteous and blameless in his conduct. And this was all for the sake that he desperately wanted people to believe in his message. Why? Because Paul himself believed in his message. That's why he was like, man, I'm willing to put in the time. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to give up my rights. I'm willing to to labor with people and to toil even when I'm tired, even when I'm worn out. I'm willing to do that because I actually believe in the message that I'm giving. Um, And this is really convicting to me because honestly, sometimes I say I really believe in the gospel and yet, um, to be honest, I I don't like putting away chairs. (laughs) after Kairos ends. And I know that you're thinking, is that really connected? Well, it is because a lot of us, our laziness in the context of ministry is often an indication of our lack of conviction in the gospel. And that's something that God has actually been teaching me a lot. That a lot of my laziness and a lot of my uh, sloth, which is one of the seven deadly sins, um, actually stems from the fact that maybe I don't believe in the gospel as much as I think I do. And yet Christ sanctifies us and convicts us and leads us into truth. The measure to which you are in awe of Jesus is the me- measure to which you will actually labor and toil to proclaim it. And what was Paul's aim in laboring and toiling for Christ? Well, we find that in the final two verses. So verse 11 says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now notice, look look with me in verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children. Notice the familial language there, right? He's not saying as a boss or a CEO. He's saying, look, as a father, right, as a spiritual father with you who I consider my children, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you, and all these things. So all of Paul's efforts, right, all his exhorting, all his encouraging, all his charging, was for the purpose, right, why, why was he doing this? Why was he proclaiming the gospel, encouraging people in the gospel? 
all his exhorting, encouraging, and charging in the gospel was for the purpose of seeing them walk in a manner worthy of God. So then the question becomes, well, what, is, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to walk in a matter, manner worthy of God? And I think one of the ways in which we can shed light on that is to look at Ephesians 5. And let me read this for you. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15, he says, this is Paul writing to the Ephesians. Look carefully then how you walk. Walk how? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving things always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what does that show us? It shows us, look, he's, Paul is essentially saying, what it means to walk worthy in God is make the best use of the time. Expose the darkness. Walk, worship the Lord in the spirit. Be filled with him. Don't be foolish, right? Understand. So essentially he's saying to walk worthy is to expose sin and then to delight in, in Christ, right? Sing to, to one another. Be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns. Give thanks to God together. Right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Fight sin. Exalt Christ. Fight sin. Exalt Christ. And there's this idea of all of Paul's efforts in exhorting and encouraging and charging people in verses 11 and 12 was for the sake of people walking worthy so that they may fight sin and exalt Jesus. Or in other words... To walk in the manner worthy of God is to be a worshiper. A worshiper of God. To love Jesus more than you love the world. Right? To reject the world and all its offers and, and to see Jesus most beautiful and most precious and to actually walk in a manner that reflects that. Because the kingdom of God is built and the glory of God is exalted by worshipers. John Piper writes in Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. Or in other words, why are we committed to sending missionaries out? And more than that, why are we committed to living our lives on mission? Because the world needs to be filled with the glory of God and that people may become worshipers of God who is worthy of all praise. Missions exist and to be on mission for Christ is a priority because worship doesn't. Golden Hills and Kairos, we're here right now. We're in this room. We're worshiping together. I'm preaching the word. And it, have you guys ever asked, like, taking a step back and asking yourself the question, why are we here? <laughs> why are we here? Are we, because think about this. This is very odd. You guys realize that, right? It's a Tuesday night. What we're doing is incredibly odd. We got together, we sang a bunch of worship songs, or love songs, to a homeless rabbi, who we say got raised from the dead. Uh, we talked to him, <laughs> we read from this book, and then this guy got up here and was like, let's go line by line in this book. And then we're gonna sing a couple more love songs to this homeless rabbi, and then we're gonna enjoy refreshments.
do you guys understand that this is weird? This is very weird. So we should probably step back and ask ourselves the question, why are we here? Why are we here? And the reason why we're here, the reason why we worship together, the reason why we sing songs that are filled with truth together, the reason why we preach the word and we hear it and we exhort one another, encourage one another, the reason why is to make worshipers. We are here to worship and exalt Christ and to find him most precious. That's why we're here. That's why we come to Kairos. We're not here so that we can feel really good about ourselves and look down our noses at, at people that are lost. We're not here so that we can feel like we've appeased God and, and we're somehow approving him because, I don't know, we show up to church. We're here to worship Christ, to exalt him. And in worshiping him and exalting him and in loving one another for the sake of his name, that other people might look at us and they might see Whatever God is in their midst, he's a God that's, also, that's worthy of worship and that they may, be, may become worshipers of God in Christ. Why are we committed to the word? Why are we committed to living in community? Why are we committed to singing together? Why are we committed to meeting in small groups? Why are we committed as a church to doing all these things? To love Jesus more, to make worshipers. That's why we're here. To worship God. Because loving Jesus always results in proclaiming him and sharing yourself for the sake of him. The building blocks of the kingdom of God is worship. Not in a way of like singing songs like, you know, smoke machines and electric guitar chords. But the building blocks of, of the kingdom of God is worship in the sense that when people see Jesus as most precious and beautiful and it comes to fill every nook and cranny of their life, they can't help but overflow and exalt Christ in the midst of their homes, in the midst of their schools, in the midst of their work workplaces. And people will see the glory of God being manifested in our midst because of the ways in which we love one another and the ways in which we study the word together and the way in which we, we show the character of the gospel itself in the way, in our relationships with one another, in the, way, in the way that we do life together. I want to see a revival in here in Kairos. I'll be blunt. I'll be, I'll be real. I want to see people saved. I want to see people on fire for Jesus. But you know, I, I, I don't want to see it for the sake of just seeing it. I don't want to see it for the wrong reasons. I want to see it for the right reasons. I want to see people saved and I want to see people passionate for Christ because Jesus is the highest treasure of your heart. Because when you, when we study the word together and we're worshiping together and we're in community together, that we begin to actually walk in a manner that's worthy of his kingdom. That we fight our sin together, that we exalt Christ together. Because I guarantee you that if we pursue those things, we might see God's glory being manifested in our midst. You know, really, it's like the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Um, some of you guys know the story of the Samaritan woman, but uh, Jesus, in John 4, he's, he's going through Samaria and he, he gets to this well. And as he's there, the Samaritan woman comes and Jesus is like, hey, can I have a drink? which obviously he was, he was breaking across cultural barriers. He was 
he was a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, which is about as radical as you could get in terms of breaking through barriers. And Samaritan woman's like, look, you don't have a bucket. Also, you're talking to me. That's really weird, right? So it's, it's already an awkward situation. And Jesus says, man, if you knew who I was, you would know that I could give you water that will, once you drink of it, you'll never thirst. And in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman turns to this man, or turns to Jesus and says, uh, give me this water always, so I don't have to come here and draw the water. Now, some people have interpreted that as she misunderstood Jesus, that she didn't understand that Jesus was talking about spiritual water and she thought it was physical water. Um, I don't think that's the case, because when you look at the text, it actually seems to indicate that this Samaritan woman knew that Jesus was making a spiritual claim. And she's basically saying, look, I want this spiritual water, right? I, I, I want to be fulfilled spiritually. And what was Jesus' very next statement to her? He says, uh, well, go and call your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. Jesus is like, yeah, you don't have a husband. You've had uh, five husbands. And the man that you're living with right now is, isn't your husband. And then the Samaritan woman's like, oh, you're a prophet. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right? And then she's like, and then she turns to religiosity. And, and so Jesus... Is, isn't it odd that Jesus responds to the Samaritan woman asking for water with all these things about how the fact that she's had five husbands and all this, and the fact that she's religious and all this stuff? Well, the thing is, is the reason why Jesus responds that way is because Jesus is pointing out all the area, areas in which she's been trying to fulfill her life. Right? She said, give me this water always. And Jesus is like, here are all the ways in which you've actually been trying to fulfill this longing and emptiness in your heart, right? You've looked to men. You've looked to this religious ideology. You've looked to all these places and you find that you're not fulfilled. And so Jesus continues talking to her and says, there's coming a day when true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And she's like, ah, I know the Messiah will come. And Jesus is like, I am the Messiah. And interestingly, she's the first person in the book of John that Jesus ever reveals himself to be the Messiah to. A Samaritan woman, outcast by society. There at the in the middle of the day because she's trying to avoid everyone. Had five husbands, broken down, no hope. Jesus shows up to her and reveals himself. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that has come to fulfill you. And so she leaves and she leaves her water jar, right? She leaves and she goes. She's like, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. And, why did, and the fact that she left her water jar is symbolic, right? That she no longer is looking for fulfillment and longing in her life in all these other areas that have failed her because she's found the source of all life. She's found the source in Christ. And yet, how can Jesus be that source? Well, you know, interestingly, the Gospel of John is the only gospel where Jesus on the cross, right before he died, is the only gospel which records Jesus saying, I thirst. And if you look at it biblically, theologically, Jesus endured eternal thirst. Jesus endured eternal separation and in, uh, he endured eternal punishment and internal, eternal longing so that you and I could find our fulfillment forever, so that you and I would never have to thirst, so that you and I could be fulfilled in Christ, who is the source of living waters. And he declares that the spirit will well up in us a fountain of living water, which will never run dry. 
And we see on the cross that Jesus actually took on everything that we deserved. All the emptiness, all the unfulfilled longing that you and I were destined for, Jesus took that weight upon himself so that you and I could find our ultimate treasure and fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And it's really a reflection of Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, drink and take without price. Because what did Jesus come to give? Jesus came to give us rest in himself, to fulfill every longing of your heart. All the things that you and I are looking for in reputation, in respect, in education, in money, in possessions and materialism, Jesus said, none of that's ever gonna fulfill you. And yet I suffered eternal thirst upon the cross, which you and I rightly deserved. Jesus says, I suffered that so that you could be filled to the brim in me. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. It's when you and I become worshipers that's when Jesus overflows and can make his appeal to us to a world that's in desperate need and in desperate longing for someone to fulfill the deepest parts of their souls. So we're going to sing now. We're going to actually exalt Christ together. And my appeal to you is this. Behold him. Behold him. Behold Jesus on the cross, making atonement for sinners. Behold Jesus risen from the grave, victorious over sin. Behold Jesus who looks at you, wretched, with nothing in your hand that you bring. He looks at you and says, that's mine. Calls you his own. Fulfills the deepest longings of your heart. And makes you a worshiper. And then through our worship makes his appeal to the world that they may become worshipers of God. And that the knowledge of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Let's pray together.